the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today, of course, we'll cover some of the headline news. We'll also talk with Sean McDowell, co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. By the way, James Blind is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Well, earlier today, at least three appear to have been uh, people uh, from the Smith Tower in Vancouver uh, injured. The shots were fired there. Uh, one we have reported dead. It's a developing story. Again, at least three appear to have um, been people injured, according to reports from the scene. No information is available about their condition. One person appears to be dead. Another woman was carried out of the building. This all started at about 2.20 p.m. The shooter was at large in the building on the 13th floor. Residents of Smith Tower in Vancouver, Washington, at 515 Washington Street, have been evacuated. The suspect is described as an 80-year-old white male, blue hat, glasses, beard wearing a tan hat and a tan and blue jacket. They believe they know the identity of the shooter. He's believed to be a resident of the building. Police have spoken with him via phone. Well, areas around the building had been cordoned off. First responders were at the scene. At least a dozen police vehicles have responded and SWAT is patrolling the area. Multiple people at a local business across the street from Smith Tower didn't see or hear anything suspicious before the shooting. Smith Tower, by the way, is a senior living apartment complex. It serves seniors 62 and older. It has 170 units. Ctran tweeted that Vine and Route 71 are on detours due to the shooting. Turtle Place Station is closed. Route 71 is not serving stops south of 8th Street. Again, that's a developing story. It's not clear at this point if the shooter has been apprehended. Well, today, of course, has been Bring Your Bible to School Day, and lots of kids did just that. Focus on the Family provided some great resources for kids who uh, chose to be a part of this, and they estimated that about a half a million kids were participating in this uh, program. But they also had other resources for parents in a follow-up. The research they point out reveals that um, the truth that homes that uh, foster a vibrant and lived out faith tend to produce children who have and keep a vibrant lived out faith as well. That's according to Glenn Stanton. He's focused on the family's director of family formation studies. Well, the research that he and others have examined shows that the kids who are most likely to carry their faith into adulthood are those who embrace spiritual disciplines such as prayer, devotions and church attendance in their younger years. They also receive the support and encouragement of satellite adults in their lives, including pastors extended family members, coaches, and others who exert a godly influence. In other words, the kids that continue to follow Christ are usually those that are actively engaging with Christianity and living it out through day-to-day actions. Every Christian parent wants their kids to own their faith, to embrace Christ as a genuine outpouring of their heart, rather than just accept Christianity as a tradition handed down from mom and dad. But what can you do as a parent to help your kids grow spiritually? Well, again, Focus on the Family, the sponsors, offered some suggestions. The first, encourage your kids to wrestle with rather than avoid faith challenges. 
Have you ever had an experience uh, of being uncomfortably challenged on a subject only to later discover that being forced to answer someone else's question actually strengthens your own convictions? Well, as uh, Stanton writes, a challenge to a child's faith actually increases resolve and conviction. It requires kids to wrestle with the question of whether faith is really worth it. Interestingly, research also shows that being teased about one's beliefs can be a faith strengthener if taken seriously and explored more deeply. Only through engaging with God's word in real life situations can kids witness the power of the gospel to cut through cultural darkness and confusion and to bring redemption to even the most hopeless situations. A great resource for helping teens respond to challenges to the truth of the Bible is Focus on the Family article Responding to Challenges, and this comes in their Take Your Bible to School Day uh, website. Another, give your children the opportunity and the freedom to live out their faith. Your kids desperately need your godly example and guidance, but they also need to be able to live their faith out on their own. One way to help them take responsibility for their faith in Christ is by empowering them to participate in something like Bring Your Bible to School Day. It was uh, today. It's a nationwide religious freedom initiative for students from kindergarten age all the way up to college level. The heart of the event is to equip and inspire Christian students to be voices of hope, to understand their religious freedoms and to express their biblical beliefs in a loving Christ centered way. The significance of the fact that Bring Your Bible to School Day is a student-led event cannot be understated. On this day, thousands of students across the country took the lead on their own campuses to celebrate religious freedom and to share God's hope with peers by taking a simple action, bringing their Bibles to school. Another they suggest is celebrate and share the Bible as a family. And although things like Bring Your Bible to School Day are student-led initiatives, think about ways that you as a parent, a grandparent, an aunt or an uncle can also challenge yourself and shine the light of Christ in your own circles of influence. For instance, when kids bring their Bibles to school, parents, adult siblings, or youth leaders can support the movement by bringing their Bibles to work. Afterwards, schedule a family time to talk about what the experience was like for all of you. For some of you, you might be doing that right now or plan to later in the evening. Finally, live out your faith year-round. It just makes sense. Kids who are empowered to speak out about their faith and influence the world around them on an ongoing basis for the sake of God's kingdom are more likely to confidently follow Christ into their adult years. This is integral to the idea of passing the Christian faith down from one generation to the next. Of course, each generation, each individual must make decisions on their own, but setting a great example will help. First Timothy 4.12 reminds us, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Events like Bring Your Bible to School Day are designed to help equip children to do exactly that. I shouldn't just say children because um, all ages were involved in this um, this project today. So kudos to those children, teenagers, and college students who brought their Bibles to school today. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, former Vice President Joe Biden denounced President Trump's attacks on him in a campaign speech in Nevada yesterday, claiming the president was afraid to, of how badly the Democrat would beat him in 2020. He did it because, like every bully in history, he's afraid. He's afraid of just how badly I would beat him next November, Biden said in Reno, referring to the president's alleged pressing Ukrainian President Zelensky to investigate the Biden family ties to Ukraine, for which he's now facing a formal 
impeachment inquiry led by House Democrats. He also called the whistleblower who raised concerns over the president's July phone call, of which he was not a first, uh, did not have a firsthand account. Um, uh, uh, calling um, the whistleblower courageous for exposing the president's scheme. Earlier Wednesday, the president called Biden and his son Hunter stone cold crooked in an explosive news conference. I have to admit, it's a bit awkward to repeat some of the quotes that are said now. They're beneath the dignity of adults in adult conversation. But nonetheless, that's where we happen to be in the 21st century. A spokesman for House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff acknowledged for the first time Wednesday that the whistleblower alleging misconduct in the White House had reached out to Schiff's panel before filing a complaint, prompting the president to accuse Schiff of being a fraud and helping write the document. Schiff had previously claimed in a televised interview that we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower and had no knowledge of it. A Schiff spokesperson seemingly narrowed that claim late Wednesday, telling Fox News that the congressman himself does not know the identity of the whistleblower and has not met with or spoken with the whistleblower or their counsel for any reason. By we, the aide said, Schiff meant members of the House Intelligence Committee, not his staff. In other developments in the formal Trump impeachment inquiry, it was a volatile Wednesday as the president set the tone by labeling Democrats' impeachment inquiry, well, a rather unflattering term, over Twitter. The fired prosecutor at the center of the Ukraine controversy said during a private interview with the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, earlier this year, that he was told to back off an investigation involving a natural gas firm that was linked to Joe Biden's son, according to details of that interview that were handed over to Congress by the State Department's inspector general. House committees leading the impeachment inquiry said they plan to issue a subpoena to force the White House to turn over records related to a pair of phone calls between Trump and Ukraine's president. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the updated report, one dead, several hurt, and the shooting at Smith Tower in Vancouver. The alleged shooter is an 80-year-old resident of the senior living apartment complex. One person is dead, several others injured in the shooting this afternoon in the lobby of Smith Tower in downtown Vancouver. The suspected shooter, an 18-year-old resident of the senior living building, has been contained in his apartment on the building's 13th floor on the south side, but is not yet in custody. Police have been communicating with him by phone. At least three people were shot. One was killed. Two patients have been transported to Peace Health Southwest Medical Center, according to Vancouver Fire Department. Both are in satisfactory condition. As of 3.50, the shooter remained in his apartment in the building. Residents of Smith uh, 515 Washington Street have been evacuated. People are asking or being asked rather to avoid the area. Asked about whether police are worried about the gunman shooting out the window. The Vancouver Police Department Public Information Officer Kim Cap said uh, it was a concern. This is an active shooter situation. The 12th floor residents who were uh, who was friends with or rather a singular a 12th floor resident who was a friend of the man who was killed, said police told residents to shelter in place. Initially, they had their uh, guns drawn, she said. Uh, they said, stay in your apartment. She was later evacuated from the building through the garage. Family members of Smith Tower residents are asked to go to Vancouver City Hall. That's at 415 West 6th Street, a few blocks from the scene to be reunited with their loved ones. An earlier lockdown at City Hall has ended. 
Areas around the building have been cordoned off and streets are closed. At least a dozen police vehicles have responded and SWAT is patrolling the area. The Department of Homeland Security is on scene. The drone hovering outside the building is a police drone. Multiple people at the Plaid Pantry, which is across the street from Smith Tower, didn't see or hear anything suspicious before the shooting. Smith Tower, as I mentioned, is a senior living apartment complex. It serves seniors 62 and older. It has 170 units and is 15 stories tall. Smith Tower is owned by Mid-Columbia Manor, Inc., a nonprofit corporation comprised of local labor unions. Peace Health is a level two trauma center, meaning they have the resources to respond to trauma, such as a severe car accident, blunt force trauma, gunshot wounds, and so on. Uh, the hospital employs about 10 trauma surgeons. A spokesperson for the hospital describes that um, as an elevated specialty of medical care. It's uh, all hands on deck to make sure we have all the materials, supplies, and staff. So they are standing by. Ctran tweeted that... Um, Vine and Route 71 are on detours due to the shooting. Turtle Place Station is closed. Route 71 is not serving stops south of 8th Street. C-Tran buses near Smith Tower are assisting residents who have been evacuated from the facility. Uh, these buses are not in service and should not be boarded by passengers. Um, again, uh, as of 3.50 p.m., the shooter remains in his apartment on the 13th floor. He is a resident of Smith Tower uh, on Washington Street. That is the latest that we have at this point. Taking a look back at the news, Amber Geyer, the former Dallas police officer convicted of murder in the shooting that killed neighbor Botham Jean, was sentenced by a jury on Wednesday to 10 years behind bars. Prosecutors had requested jurors sentence Geyer to 28 years in prison to represent Jean's 28th birthday this past Sunday. Impassioned Black Lives Matter activists expressed outrage at what they considered a light sentence. Still, the scene in court was emotional. In a victim impact statement, Jean's 18-year-old brother, Brand, said he forgave Geyer and hoped that she would devote her life to Christ before proceeding to hug her in the middle of the courtroom, for which he was soundly criticized by onlookers. Judge Tammy Kemp, who is also black, also hugged Geyer before she was led from the courtroom, raising eyebrows from onlookers. By the way, that judge also gave her her personal Bible, turned it to 316, John 316, saying this is your assignment for the next five to 10 years. Ilhan Omar says, I live rent free inside the heads of Trump over critics and other critics. She's a woman. She's an immigrant. She's Muslim. And that's intersectionality of identities. uh, President Trump is terrified of. That's a quote from U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar claiming in a television appearance. Of course, her name hasn't come up for quite some time. So perhaps she's just trying to get some attention. That was Wednesday night. Omar is a member of the so-called squad. Uh, Far left congressional Democrats made the remarks on the late night comedy show Full Frontal with Samantha B. Bob Woodward may have sealed his place in journalism history nearly a half century ago with his reporting on Watergate, but that didn't seem to help him Wednesday night when he drew booze from a Washington audience and sparked a Twitter backlash while moderating an interview with the two female co-authors of a new book about the Harvey Weinstein sexual misconduct scandal. And Apple CEO Tim Cook and senior vice president Deidre uh, O'Brien sent a brief to the U.S. Supreme Court in support of the contribution that immigrants and specifically dreamers have made in America and specifically Apple. The brief is a passionate defense of the dreamers. They are immigrants protected from deportation by an order established during the Obama administration, which the Trump administration wants to end. Cook mentioned that Apple employs 443 dreamers who come from more than 25 different countries 
on four continents. Former Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin, who was fired after uh, then-Vice President Joe Biden pressured the president of Ukraine to fire him as he investigated a company, Burisma, that employed Biden's son, Hunter, says he was uh, told to back off the investigation into the company before he was fired. And the Trump administration is moving forward with its plan to dramatically expand DNA testing of illegal migrants at the southern border, a move intended to help control the immigration crisis. Border Patrol agents will soon have the ability to collect DNA samples of migrants apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border, according to a Department of Homeland Security announcement yesterday. DHS has already implemented a pilot program that tested family relations. However, the new broad program will be able to identify migrants more broadly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Rest. We'll continue to wind our way through some of the headlines and the news, and we'll be back. I guess we won't be back. I thought you gave me the one-minute sign. <laughs> You're just doing so. Yeah, I got plenty to, to keep going. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, top Senate Democrats on Wednesday called... <laughs> It's the weirdest thing. I thought for sure. Anyway, top Senate Democrats on Wednesday called on the IRS to determine whether the National Rifle Association should be stripped of its law exempt or rather tax exempt status. An investigation by Senate Finance Committee Democrats found that the NRA had violated its nonprofit status by using the organization's money to develop relationships during the 2016 election with two Russian nationals. The deputy governor of the Central Bank of Russia, Alexander Torshin, and unregistered foreign agent Maria Butina. A charity event in honor of a police officer killed while responding to a mass shooting in Thousand Oaks, California, last year has been canceled after the local police chief and a Democratic politician objected to the participation of prominent Republicans. Really, under that circumstance, they can't sit in the same room to honor an individual who served everyone. Shameful. A new uh, political action committee launched by liberal billionaire George Soros has given $350,000 to Planned Parenthood, Virginia, its largest outside contribution ever ahead of the state's November elections records show. And stung by a public outcry, Fairfax County Police Chief Edwin Rosler announced on Wednesday that he had canceled the suspension and restored to duty an officer who, officer rather, who had turned an illegal immigrant over to ICE. I said issued a warrant or some kind of report saying that this individual uh, was being sought. The police officer detained him until ICE could come, for which he was uh, suspended. On this day in history, 1789, President George Washington declares November 26th, 1789, a day of Thanksgiving to express gratitude for the creation of the United States of America. And then on 18, uh, on this day in 1863, President Abraham Lincoln proclaims the last Thursday in November to be Thanksgiving Day. In 1955, on this day, Captain Kangaroo and the Mickey Mouse Club premiere on CBS and ABC, respectively. I used to love Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Green Jeans, and the whole, a whole um, group. On this day in uh, 2001, the Senate approves an agreement normalizing trade between the United States and Vietnam. On this day in history, 1995, a Los Angeles jury finds O.J. Simpson not guilty of the 1994 slayings of his former wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ronald Goldman. However, Simpson would be found liable for damages at a separate civil trial. And then, also on this day, fast forward to 2008, O.J. Simpson is found guilty of robbing two sports memorabilia dealers at gunpoint in a Los Angeles or rather Las Vegas hotel room. Simpson would later be sentenced to nine to 33 years in prison and ultimately granted parole in July of 2017 and released in October of that same year. Found not guilty of one thing, 
guilty of another, both on the same day. Is it time to go to break, Clark? Is this, this is good? Okay. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later on in the second hour of the program, we'll talk with uh, Sean McDowell, co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. Seems like an appropriate conversation on this Take Your Bible to School day. Well, the whistleblower who raised concerns about the president's July call to uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky informed House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff of the call's content before he filed a formal complaint, according to The New York Times reporting yesterday. The anonymous whistleblower told a House Intelligence Committee aide that he was concerned about uh, Trump's behavior on the call. And the aide passed that information to Schiff, uh, but did not reveal the whistleblower's identity. The early accusations were reportedly vague, but the whistleblower made clear to the aide that he was determined to make them known. Well, like other whistleblowers have done before and since under Republican and Democratic-controlled committees, the whistleblower contacted the committee for guidance on how to report possible wrongdoing within the jurisdiction of the intelligence community, a spokesperson for Schiff says. Well, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week announced the launch of a formal impeachment inquiry against the president amid accusations that he withheld military aid from Ukraine in an effort to prompt a Ukrainian investigation into Democratic presidential frontrunner Joe Biden. The president responded uh, to the news that Schiff had an early heads up about the whistleblower's accusation, saying it shows the chairman is a fraud. I think that it's a scandal, and uh, I'll go a step further. I think he helped write it. Well, there's no evidence of that at this point. Uh, Trump previously said on Twitter that he wants Schiff questioned at the highest level for fraud and treason, adding that the California Democrat made up what I actually said by lying to Congress, referring to his uh, characterization of the call that opened the hearings last week. Mark Alexander and Nate Jackson say this of um, uh, all of uh, this back and forth. They write the Democratic head of the House Intelligence Committee, Representative Adam Schiff of California, learned about the outlines of a CIA officer's concerns that the president uh, had abused his power days before the officer filed a whistleblower complaint, reports the New York Times in a blockbuster story that undermines what little credibility Schiff had left. Schiff and his PR team at the New York Times are building his defense in this matter around the assertion that the congressman never met with the whistleblower. Schiff asserted numerous times before Wednesday that he did not know about the complaint before the inspector general of the intelligence community notified his committee. He asserted on September 17th when news of the complaint first surfaced we have not spoken directly with the whistleblower, and according to Schiff's Intelligence Committee spokesman, uh, at no point did the committee review or receive the complaint in advance. Well, those smokescreen de- denials, Alexander and Jackson point out, sound quite similar to the claims of the whistleblower's attorney, Mark Zaid. I can unequivocally state that neither any member of the legal team nor the whistleblower has ever met with or spoken to uh, Congressman Schiff about this matter, end quote. Well, thanks to the Times, however, we now know this is a lie. And by Schiff's spokesperson's own admission, the congressman's office referred the whistleblower to the IGIC. The Times adds, it also explains how Mr. Schiff knew to press for the complaint when the Trump administration initially blocked lawmakers from seeing it. President Trump isn't buying Schiff's defense. He knew long before and helped write it, too, Trump said. It's a scam, he went on to say. Well, that, of course, prompted the Times to offer a um, 
fact-checking, dutifully echoing Schiff's talking points. There's no evidence that Mr. Schiff helped write the complaint, and his spokesman said he saw no part of the complaint before it was filed, end quote. Well, again, those denials, Alexander and Jackson point out, are carefully scripted as the complaint itself. Of course, the whistleblower didn't meet directly with Schiff or his committee. They use cutouts, as they are known in the intelligence community. Individuals who convey information between the whistleblower and Schiff in order to provide him plausible deniability, except it's not so plausible. Schiff didn't personally have those conversations or literally help write the complaint, but the idea that Schiff didn't know exactly what was in the complaint is preposterous. His staff received outlines of the complaint uh, before referring the whistleblower to the ICIG. In other words, they knew what would be in the complaint. After all, Schiff needed time to write his B-movie skit about the president's phone call, a deceitful show for which House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has signed a resolution seeking to censure Schiff. This is a hoax, Trump rightly concluded. This is just a continuation of what has been playing out since the election. And he uh, insists Schiff should be forced to resign from Congress. Of course, that's not going to happen. Given that the Times studiously avoids the issue of timing, that Schiff had a month and a half to coordinate the rollout of a complaint filed in August, all of this now leads to another serious question. Is there a connection between Schiff and the alerted CIA reporting form? Well, Again, uh, Mark Alexander, Nate Jackson asking pertinent uh, questions. So many things to go through here. I'm, I'm editing. I mentioned uh, briefly earlier that the fired prosecutor at the center of that Ukrainian controversy said during a private interview with the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, earlier this year, that he was told to back off an investigation involving a natural gas firm that was linked to Joe Biden's son, by whom, uh, not yet clear, according to details of that interview that were handed over to Congress by the State Department's inspector general on Wednesday. A copy of that uh, report, Giuliani's notes from the January 2019 interview with fired Ukrainian prosecutor Viktor Shokin, in which he claimed that his investigations stopped out of fear of the United States. Mr. Shokin attempted to continue the investigation, but on or around June or July of 2015, the U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt told him that the investigation has to be handled with white gloves, which, according to Mr. Shokin, that uh, implied do nothing, the notes from the interview stated. Well, the notes also claim Shokin was told Biden had held up U.S. aid to Ukraine over the investigation. Shokin was fired if, uh, in April of 2016, and his case was uh, closed by the current prosecutor general, according to the notes. Despite his claim, Shokin on both sides of the Atlantic uh, had been widely accused of corruption. Biden's role is uh, back in the spotlight after Democrats launched this impeachment inquiry over the president's efforts to convince Ukraine to look into Biden's son's activity there. Well, former U.S. envoy for Ukraine, Kurt Volker, appeared on Capitol Hill uh, today as one of the first witnesses to go before the congressional body with impeachment probe triggered by the whistleblower complaint on the president's uh, July 25th phone call. Volker is participating in a closed-door transcribed interview with members of the House Intelligence, Oversight, and Foreign Affairs Committees after the complaint mentioned him as having allegedly played a role in Trump's lawyer, Rudy Giuliani's investigation connected to Ukraine. 
Volcker resigned soon after the complaint was made public last week. While talking to reporters outside the hearing, Ohio Representative Jen Jordan, the top Republican on the House Oversight Committee, praised Volcker as unbelievably knowledgeable about what was going on in Ukraine and called him a true professional in our diplomatic corps. But not one thing he said comports with any of the Democrats' impeachment narrative, he added, not one thing. Well, House Intelligence Committee Chairman Representative Schiff told reporters Thursday afternoon that he would not yet comment on Volcker's testimony, but offered some words of criticism for Trump. Schiff claimed that by suggesting, urging a foreign country to interfere in our presidential election, Trump showed that after two years of Robert Mueller's um, Russia investigation, he feels he can do anything with impunity. That's a quote from Schiff. Meanwhile, new encrypted text messages uh, that have been obtained by uh, Mr. Volcker and other U.S. officials battling internally last month over whether Trump was engaged in quid pro quo with Ukraine as he pressed for the country to look into the Biden family while holding back U.S. aid. The texts uh, with Volcker, U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, and um, uh, charged affairs of the U.S. embassy in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, indicate that the nature of the potential arrangement between the U.S. and Ukraine was a matter of dispute. So there was disagreement within the inner circle. Um, As I said on the phone, I think it's crazy to withhold security assistance for help with a political campaign. Taylor said in a text exchange, Sondland uh, responded by saying that was not what was happening. Bill, I believe you are incorrect about President Trump's intention. The president has been crystal clear. No quid pro quo of any kind. The president is trying to elevate whether Ukraine is truly going to adopt the transparency and reforms that President Zelensky promised during his campaign. Well, both men then agreed to cease discussing the matter over text, noting that phone calls with the appropriate officials would be preferable. Well, Democrats are accusing the president of threatening to withhold military aid as leverage to obtain Ukraine's assistance in an investigation into the Biden family. Trump adamantly denies any quid pro quo, and it will certainly uh, continue. By the way, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy sent a letter on Thursday to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi calling on her to suspend the impeachment inquiry into the president until equitable rules and procedures are set up. Um, Hours after McCarthy's letter was posted, Pelosi responded with her own note, suggesting Democrats would not be uh, hitting pause anytime soon. She wrote that existing rules of the House provide House committees with full authority to conduct investigations for all matters under their jurisdiction. It's not quite yet an impeachment. It's an impeachment inquiry. So some of the hard and fast rules don't quite yet apply, she argued. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next hour, we'll talk with Sean McDowell, co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And oh, what a challenging world it is. Well, next month's Democratic presidential debate will take place on one single night instead of two. The Democratic National Committee announced... Uh, To address several inquiries we have received, we are writing to let you know that pending a final decision after the certification deadline, it is uh, the intention of the DNC and our media partners to hold the October debate over one night on Tuesday, October 15th, the, the DNC wrote in an email Friday morning. The email was sent to the various presidential campaigns, um, the 12 candidates on uh, in the record-setting field of Democratic White House hopeful say they'll reach the qualifying criteria to make the stage at the showdown, which will be held on the campus of um, 
Otterbein University and Westerville, Ohio. It's the fourth round of debates for the Democrats this cycle. Those candidates in alphabetical order are former Vice President Joe Biden, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey, South Bend, Indiana, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, former Housing and Urban Development Secretary Julian Assange, uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii, uh, Senator Kamala Harris, of California, Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, former Representative Beto O'Rourke of Texas, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, billionaire environmentalist Tom Steyer, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts, and tech entrepreneur Andrew Yang. It appears that Senator Elizabeth Warren has taken the lead, and um, it uh, was announced earlier today that uh, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont does intend to participate in that event on the 15th, despite the fact that he had surgery on his heart. No other presidential contenders appear likely to reach the threshold to make the cut. To reach the stage, candidates needed to hit at least 2% in four qualifying polls and contributions from at least 130,000 individual donors. The debate's being hosted by CNN. In and the New York Times, the first two rounds of debates in June and July, which had lower um, criterion for qualification, were told over two consecutive nights, or rather held over, with 10 candidates on the stage each evening. Ten candidates faced off on one night in this month's uh, third round debate for which the threshold uh, was raised. So that's coming up on the 15th of October. Well, two years after a madman set a, a sniper's nest inside a Los, An- Las Vegas high-rise hotel room, Lawyers representing some of the hundreds wounded and family members of the 58 killed announced today they've reached a deal with MGM's resorts that could pay up to $800 million. But while the money may be settled, the motive for the massacre remains unknown and perhaps unknowable. The announcement comes as events this week mark the two-year anniversary of the attack in which gunman Stephen Paddock opened fire on concert goers outside the Mandalay Bay Resort on the 1st of October 2017. Las Vegas law firm uh, Eglet Adams says the amount of the settlement depends on the number of plaintiffs who choose to uh, take part. While nothing will be able to bring back the lives of those or undo the horrors of uh, the many who suffered on that day, this settlement will provide fair compensation for thousands of victims and their families. The lead plaintiff's counsel said in a statement, MGM Resorts is a valued member of the Las Vegas community, and this settlement represents good corporate citizenship on their part, end quote. He added, we believe that the terms of this settlement represent the best outcome for our clients and will provide the greatest good for those impacted by those events. Now, I'll be interested to see what percentage of that um, number, $800 million, up to $800 million, uh, the uh, law firm will uh, take in terms of fees. The law firm says an independent party will be appointed uh, by the court to evaluate claims and dole out the money from the settlement fund and that the entire process uh, should be completed by late 2020. The settlement funds uh, will be funded by MGM Resorts Insurer with a minimum of $735 million dollars According to the attorney, depending on the claimant participation, the resort will um, add additional amounts up to $800 million to cover uh, damages, if you will. The motive for the shooting, which was the deadliest in modern U.S. history, is still unknown. The FBI agents and behavior specialists spent more than a year investigating the attack but could not reach a conclusion. The uh, Aaron Roos, the special agent in charge of the FBI's Las Vegas office, said in January that the shooter acted alone when he planned and carried out the attack. The 64-year-old fatally shot himself as police arrived into his uh, hotel suite. Las Vegas police also closed their investigation in August of last year without establishing a motive. Drugs that are being used as a puberty blocker in 
Gender-confused youths have been linked to tens of thousands of serious reactions and thousands of deaths, as well as other serious medical issues, according to Food and Drug Administration data. The FDA has now documented over 41,000 adverse reactions suffered by patients who took uh, the drug known as Lupron, which is used as a hormone blocker. There have been 25,645 reactions considered serious, including 6,379 deaths. Luprin is traditionally used for treatment for prostate cancer as it inhibits the flow of testosterone over the prostate. Well, the drug is clinically approved for treatment of, of um, uh, precocious puberty, a condition where children start their puber, uh, puberty process at an abnormally early age and the blocker is administered for a short time until the proper age. However, it's being prescribed off-label for use in children who've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, despite the lack of formal FDA approval for that purpose and the absence of any peer-reviewed studies done on the drug's long-term effects. Lupron, the ancist, um, synthetic hormones, have been documented to contribute to physical problems such as blood clots, other cardiovascular complications, brittle bones, faulty joints, altered psyche, and permanent sterilization, yet many of the long-term re- repercussions will not be felt for years. Despite these serious issues, sales of the drug were approximately $669 million in 2017 in the United States alone. In an interview with the Christian Post, Dr. Michael Laidlaw, the California-based pediatric endocrinologist, stated that he knows of no other psychological condition that is treated by administering hormones out of alignment from their normal levels. When injected into a physically healthy body, the drug Uh, interrupts a normal functioning endocrine system, causes a condition where the male testes or the female ovaries produce little or no hormones at all. Currently, doctors are giving testosterone to gender-confused girls as young as 8 years old, and teen girls as young as 13 are uh, having their um, uh, breasts removed via mastectomy procedures. Boys the age of 17 uh, can have surgery as well, Uh, developmental well, it's rather complicated. I'll I'll leave that I leave that for later. But Dr. Laidlaw saw gender dysphoria uh, said rather that it's not an endocrine condition, but is a psychological one and should therefore be treated with proper psychological care. But it becomes an endocrine condition once you start using puberty blockers and giving cross-sex hormones to kids. There have been few f- uh, physicians willing to stand up and say we need to question this. There's something wrong here. Why are we using cancer drugs on kids without cancer? And stopping normal puberty, he says. Dr. Paul Hertz, another pediatric endocrinologist who spoke with the Christian Post, said that overwhelming medical evidence exists that the vast majority of affected children will spontaneously realign their gender identity with their biological sex when left alone. He also stated that the largest studies that have been done in post-transition adults continue to show rates of death by suicide that are markedly above the background population. The reality is that there is no long-term data about treating children, and the only data that we have in adults indicates that medical interventions to align the appearance of the body to a transgendered identity does not fix the problem. Liberty Council um, is... uh, helping to champion this information, and uh, it is a story that continues to develop. Well, West Point High School French teacher Peter Fleming, that's with a V, is a soft-spoken man who was uh, well-loved by his students. He wasn't looking for a fight. He was just looking to do his job. But when the school demanded that he use male pronouns for a biological girl student who had decided to identify as a transgender boy, Mr. Vlaming was faced with a decision. 
follow his beliefs and potentially lose his job or violate his beliefs and keep it. Mr. Vlaming explained to the school that, as a Christian, he believes that God made humans male and female and that a girl cannot become a boy. He tried to work with the school. He agreed to call the student by her new masculine name. He asked permission to avoid pronouns altogether when speaking about the student in her absence. Remember, third-person pronouns, he or she, are used when the person is absent. So this could not um, uh, be said to be a failure of courtesy. But to use a false pronoun was to deny God's purposeful design and that he could not do. I did agree to use the new masculine name and to avoid female pronouns, Mr. Vlaming said, but I won't use male pronouns with a female student. Well, the school board fired him by unanimous vote for insubordination. Mr. Vlaming was fired not for saying the wrong thing, but for refusing to say the wrong thing. He was punished for remaining silent. Hmm. In 1943, in a case of whether a school could force someone to salute the American flag, the Supreme Court wrote in strong, clear terms, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, rather, it is that no official, high or or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, religion, or other matters of opinion or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. That's a decision in West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. More recently, the court affirmed that the First Amendment right not to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And just last year, Justice Anthony Kennedy explained that it is not forward thinking to force individuals to be an instrument for fostering public adherence to an ideological point of view they find unacceptable. More on that when we return in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic, and then we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Sean McDowell. He's the co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. That's uh, Sean McDowell rather coming up in our next segment. We're talking about a West Point High School French teacher, Peter Vlaming, who tried to make some accommodation. He agreed to refer to his once female student who now self-identifies as male by her chosen name, but didn't want to use pronouns that were did not fit her biological sex. Well, he was fired. There are some cases that might inform the direction that this uh, might go as he challenges uh, his firing. As I mentioned before the, uh, the top of the hour just a moment ago, in 1943, there was a case on whether a school could force someone to salute the American flag. The Supreme Court wrote at the time, again in 1943, in a very strong, clear term, if there is any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, it is that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what shall be orthodox in politics, religion, or other matters of opinion, or force citizens to confess by word or act their faith therein. West Virginia State Board of Education versus Barnett. More recently, the court affirmed the First Amendment right not to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. And just last year, Justice Anthony Kennedy explained that uh, it is uh, not uh, forward uh, thinking to force individuals to be an instrument for fostering public adherence to an ideological point of view they find unacceptable. 
That's a concurring opinion, NIFLA versus Becerra. Well, so citizens can remain silent during the Pledge of Allegiance and even uh, refuse to salute the American flag. But this Christian teacher cannot remain silent when school officials demand that he pronounce a false pronoun. He wasn't fired for something he said, the lawsuit reads. He was fired for what he didn't say. And this week, he decided to do something about it, suing school officials and the school board for violating his right to free speech and religious freedom. His lawsuit will seek $1 million in damages. Well, again, this is a West Point High School French teacher, a very soft-spoken, um, well-loved by his students, wasn't looking for a fight, was just looking to do his job. But when the school demanded that he use male pronouns for a biological girl student, he agreed to call her by the name she had chosen, but preferred to just avoid using pronouns altogether. That was not acceptable. We'll follow the story as the suit has now been filed. Well, in Beijing, they were partying like it was 1949, and there's no better way to celebrate the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party than with a massive military parade and a speech by President Xi Jinping. Well, certainly the party has uh, reasons to party. They control everything, the government, the armed forces, the economy, communication. They rule over a country that stands as a world-class diplomatic and economic power and a rising military one. But James Carafano points out that, on the other hand, the party faces some rising problems, too. Here are five of them wreaking havoc in Hong Kong. Well, months of protests, rioting continues. Uh, with no sign of stopping to explain the discontent, Beijing is pushing a new line. The crisis for uh, the cries rather for freedom, it seems, are rooted in the high cost of housing. There's no doubt that steep housing costs weigh heavily on the younger generation, but that's not what the, has brought people to the streets and kept them there. The protests, as uh, we know, are rooted firmly in the legitimate fear that Beijing's heavy hand will encroach on their political and economic freedom, which they only actually have for a couple of decades. The Hong Kong protests have. Um, sullied China's brand. Uh, The regime continues to undermine the integrity of the basic law, which requires Beijing to respect the freedoms of the Hong Kong people. Every day of protest remains the world, uh, uh, the world that China doesn't keep, um, learns that China doesn't keep its promises. And then there's the oppression of the Uyghurs. You don't read much about it, but that continues. The party has thrown a million uh, members of this Muslim minority community into heavily guarded camps, a million Uh, This brutal treatment places China among the globe's leading oppressors of religious liberty and other human rights. Uh, It also sullies the party's brand. It complains about uh, rather complaints about Chinese abuses headlined the sessions on religious persecution that was chaired by the president at least at last week's meeting at the United Nations General Assembly. And then there's the hijacking of the human uh, the U.N. human rights uh, abuse um, uh, apparatus. Uh, it wasn't the only charge leveled at Beijing at the uh, General Assembly meeting. Many of uh, are waking up to the fact that the Chinese Communist Party has been systematically placing its people in U.N. organizations with the express purpose of bending the agencies to advance China's preferred policies, despite the fact that those individuals have to take an oath that they are uh, neutral in their application of uh, the work that they do. China's shifting outcomes to benefit Chinese uh, priorities and ideology, writes uh, Brett Schaefer, a leading expert on U.N. operations. Um, also letting the um, mask slip uh, from the BRI. China sold the Belt and Road Initiative as Beijing's gift to the world. It's a way to help others share in China's prosperity. Well, that narrative is wearing thin. Increasingly, 
Uh, BRI looks like economic imperialism. Alarmed, more and more countries are blocking the investment. Others are looking to counterbalance uh, Chinese presence by increasing U.S., European, and Japanese investments in their countries. And it's not just BRI, again, the uh, Belt and Road Initiative that's made the world suspicious of China's economic activity. Corporations like the telecom giant Huawei are increasingly viewed as instrument of Chinese power, not just uh, benign global companies that sell stuff cheap. The Communist Chinese Party has uh, no one but itself to blame for sullying the reputation of China's economic activity rather than introduce an alternative to the free market system. Also, China's economy is slowing. After roaring for several decades, the dragon has a sore throat. Um, Riley Waters, who is an economic analyst for the Heritage Foundation, summarizes the state of China's economy this way, and I'm quoting, China's economic growth has been slowing down despite two decades of increased trade and investment. China's economic development will plateau before ever reaching high income status. With an aging population, significant amounts of debt, few economic allies, China's economy is in severe need of reform. Put another way, the Communist Party's economic policies are running out of runway. I I like the way that's uh, put. They won't be able to steal, cheat, or bully their way to a world-class economy. That means China will have to make some hard choices uh, in the not-too-distant future. They won't be able to meet the rising expectations of their citizens, continue to fund a military built up to threaten the U.S. presence in the Indo-Pacific, and pay for all their global meddling. Something um, has to give. And ultimately, uh, if they want to keep their economy growing, they're going to have to adopt the free market reforms and fair practices the party has been actively suppressing. Well, we'll see how that goes. Let the regime parade and uh, party all they want. Um, James Carafano writes, but if the party rules for the next 70 years like they govern now, its members will wind up with a massive hangover and sad realization that they have fewer friends, less wealth and less policy Uh, And again, that's uh, China celebrating 70 years of uh, communism in that country. Up next, we're going to uh, hear from Sean McDowell. He's the co-author of the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. Some of them were exercising their uh, faith muscles by bringing their Bibles to school today. This is a good follow-up with Sean McDowell. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, young people are leaving the church in record numbers. We know that, but what do we do about it? Well, best-selling authors and worldview experts, Sean McDowell, Ph.D., and Warner Wallace, they know that parents, youth leaders, Christian educators can help the next generation embrace a biblical worldview. So the next generation will know preparing young Christians for a challenging world is a practical guide using research-based and proven strategies to help us understand the younger generation and provides the tools to help equip them with the truth of Christianity. So the next generation will know covers how to recognize the uniqueness of Generation Z. I know you're wondering, which one is that? Connect with the hearts of young people, relate and share what we know about Jesus, provide kids a worldview that is significant, and provide Prepare students through movies, music, social media, and current events. Every chapter of the book, So the Next Generation Will Know, features information that speaks directly to various adults in a child's life. Uh, Interviews with pastors, apologists, teachers, cultural experts, and examples of people in ministries that are effectively teaching truth to the next generation. Say, uh, my guests, the next generation of Christians face
faces spiritual, emotional, intellectual, and moral challenges like no prior group of believers. Time is short, the challenges are pressing, and the need is great. Now more than ever, we must embrace strategies that will help young people set their hope in God, remember the works of God, and keep the commands of God so that the next generation will know. Well, Dr. Sean McDowell is a best-selling author, co-author or editor of more than 18 books, including Is God Just a Human Invention? and Evidence That Demands a Verdict with his father, Josh McDowell. He's also an associate professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University, and blogs regularly. Um, Sean speaks internationally on a variety of topics related to culture, students, and apologetics. He joins us today to talk about the book that he co-authored, So the next generation will know, preparing young Christians for a challenging world. Sean McDowell, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Georgine. You know, when we think about the challenges that the uh, younger generations are facing, we sort of wring our hands because we, too, face the challenge of how to connect with them in ways that are meaningful and uh, will help move them in the right direction. Can you help give us some perspective on the challenge that both the older generation and the younger generation face when we're talking about being faithful followers of Christ? Yeah, I think that's a great way you frame it, that there's older generations, whether it's millennials, Xers, boomers, and up, looking at this new generation thinking, I don't even know where to begin, how to connect to them. And then there's young people looking at the old generation thinking they're out of touch. Uh, they don't have a clue what's going on. And the first point that I want to make that's very important for both sides to realize is across the generations, whatever generation we're talking about, Georgine, is we have much more in common than we do differences. Our common humanity helps us transcend these cultural differences, and we have to remember that because sometimes we focus on the differences that are actually there. So for adults, it really just begins by saying, all right, what's unique about this generation? How do they think? How do they see the world? And am I willing to step outside of my comfort zone, Mm -hmm. reprioritize values in my life? and begin to reach out to this generation, which, as you kind of hinted at, has more challenges just one click away on their smartphones than any generation has ever faced before. Yeah, and I think the challenge is to do that without having a scowl on our faces. I am so glad to hear you say (laughs) that, because when I speak on Gen Z, I'll often ask audiences, and these are adult audiences, give me words that describe this generation. And people say things like uh, confused, arrogant, uh, disconnected, all these kind of negative terms. And then I stop, I pause, I say, let me ask you a question. Were the words positive or negative you used to describe this generation? And there's like this pause. I wish I had a video of it where light turns on. People think, oh my goodness. And I make the point. I say how we view this generation will shape how we relate to them. Yeah, or don't relate. Yeah, or don't relate. Exactly. (laughs) So every generation, there's positive and negative. We have to choose to see through the positive. And if we do, we can connect with this generation. Yeah. I think about the scripture that says that God is faithful to all generations. He's not puzzled by it. This isn't something that he's challenged with trying to come up with some way to penetrate their hearts. He's faithful to every generation. So if we seek him and we seek to understand this generation, that connection uh, can be made. Now, why do you think Gen Z is the is the least religious generation? And what are some of the factors that play into that lack of faith? Well, one of the things with Gen Z that's hard to know is, are they truly less religious? Or are is this generation defining themselves differently, and the definition of religion playing a less central role? 
And I actually think it's towards the latter. If you go towards the 1960s, only 60% of incoming freshmen did not define themselves as belonging to a particular religion. Today, it's over 30-some percent. So we're tempted to say, oh, my goodness, they're so less religious. And I think, you know what? I think how we define ourselves and what this generation bases their identity in, religion is no longer at the top of their list. It's not taken for granted. But I think when we go back over previous decades, it's not like this generation was necessarily more religious. I actually think they just didn't define themselves that way. So we're kind of seeing the middle hollow out, though, to speak. So there still really are a lot in Bible-believing, teaching churches. A number of young people, a significant minority, that do see themselves religiously. But my concern is not so much our identification, but how this secular worldview has been more significantly Mm -hmm. into a lot of areas of this generation. Well, let's talk about the outsized influence that the modern media uh, has in shaping the worldview of young people. We tend to think that um, the rest of us have very little influence, that, the, that modern media essentially is the primary shaper of worldview. Is that true? And should we um, be uh, intimidated by that if it is true? Georgine, every study I've seen shows that the primary shaper of the worldview of young people is parents. Primary. And a lot of times, because parents are not engaged in relationships, they're not training their kids up in the ways of the Lord, then by default, the media and the other uh, kind of elements in culture shape their worldview. So parents are number one. But with that said, yes, the kind of different forms of media, in particular social media, has a huge influence on this generation. And it's kind of in two ways. One is the message itself that comes through. But second, the medium of social media, the way people communicate, is also affecting this generation. I think the structure of their brains, their relationships, mm-hmm. and certainly their worldview. What are some of the common questions about Christianity in particular that you are asked by nonbelievers in this generation? You know what's interesting about this generation is you actually start to see a lot of the same questions from believers and nonbelievers about the faith. There's not a huge difference in the questions. And here's some of the top ones. One of them is kind of the intersection of science and faith. Uh, Do I have to give up uh, science to be a Christian? Can I believe in evolution? Kind of that kind of conversation is significant. Second, questions like, how is Jesus the only way? That feels exclusive to a generation that uh, has been told inclusiveness is the highest value. Mm -hmm. And there's also questions of, uh, the damage or so-called damage Christians have done. I mean, not only the Inquisition and Crusades, but we've heard about a lot of abuse within the Church even today. And last, I'd say LGBTQ questions of identity and sexuality are really central to this generation. I get asked that all the time. And do you find that most people from, or the majority of people from the older generations are unprepared to address those questions, don't quite know how to answer some of the more challenging sexuality, for example, um, or that they just shy away from discussing them? Well, to be completely honest with you, I don't think most people in the Church have really thought through and developed a consistent biblical worldview that addresses the tougher issues of our day, and that makes our task harder. Because how can we raise up a generation with more challenges ethically if we don't really know what we believe first? So I think the reason people are reluctant to have conversations with this generation is because they really don't know what they believe themselves first. Yeah, and I think that's such an important point 
that we shy away because we're unprepared. And I think your book, So the Next Generation Will Know, challenges us to recognize we must be prepared or else just write off uh, the generation that I think has a, an openness uh, to respond to the gospel when presented in a way that they can understand, speaking a language that they speak in the context of the culture that we all live in. I think that's right, and I'm glad to hear you say that, because part of being human is we're made in the image of God, and we yearn for meaning, we yearn for purpose, we want to know truth. Deep in our hearts, we're only satisfied if we know God and we have real community. But the problem is that this generation just has so many distractions around them that they never have to stop and really feel the loneliness in their heart. They can just distract themselves. But I found in the right relationship and a lot of the strategies we employ in the book, this generation is willing and eager to have those kind of significant spiritual conversations. And we should be encouraged by that rather than feeling hopeless. We should be encouraged and that there's a role that uh, generations uh, that have gone before, those of us who are older, uh, can play in helping them uh, arrive at that that uh, relationship. Now, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again, talking with uh, Dr. Sean McDowell. The book he co-authored with J. Warner Wallace is So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. And we can all play a role in that. But we have to begin by, first of all, just um, making young people a priority. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Sean McDowell, the book he co-authored along with Jay Warner Wallace. So the next generation will know, preparing young Christians for a challenging world. Well, let's talk about the book and how it can help those of us who have a genuine concern about and a, a love for young people and want to help those who are followers um, to prepare to, um, to live out their faith in a challenging world. Uh, let's talk about how the book helps instruct us so that we might minister to those younger. Yeah, the book really uniquely is not a kind of a a what book in the sense of here's what you need to believe or here's what you need to understand. Although we have a little bit in there, the book is really what we call a how-to practical guide to put this into practice. So we explain a few things like here's what a worldview is, here's what's unique about Generation Z, here's how they think. But really, we just want this to be like a manual that a parent, a youth pastor, uh, a mentor, a Christian school teacher, really any caring adult who looks at the next generation and says, gosh, I want to help them own their faith, can just take this and come up with some practical strategies to help them really own their faith. So this is after you've um, graduated from seminary and you've had uh, an internship in a church for a couple of years and so that you are theologically prepared and confident that you can address every potential situation that, that might come up. This is really for regular folks, for parents who are concerned, for youth leaders who are concerned, for pastors, for regular folks who are walking along the way and want to bring young people along with them. Yeah, that's exactly right. You don't have to be a pro at all of this. Now, we certainly give a list of resources and encourage people to go deeper in their understanding of theology and culture and apologetics. But one of the studies that we came across that really surprised me, it's the largest study I have ever seen on faith transmission, 3,500 people, four generations, 35 years, by a USC professor, Vern Bankston. They were looking sociologically at faith transmission from one next generation to the next. And you know what the most significant statistical factor was? It was a, quote, warm relationship with the Father. 
Now, that's powerful. Hmm. That doesn't, doesn't mean the mom's not important because the father tends to be more of a wild card than the mom. But it shows that anybody can reach out, build relationships, and that truth is best experienced and passed through relationships. We can all do this if we're willing to just step out and do it. In fact, each one of your, your chapters challenges the reader to make love their motivation. Um, your chapters, for example, Do You Love Me? Love Responds, Love Understands, Love Relates, so that the motivation isn't dominance, it isn't um, anything other than a genuine regard for young people um, and how we can pass along to them what we have learned along the way of following Jesus. Yeah, that's exactly right. I really began the story with a, a simple but story that was memorable to me. Well, maybe three years ago, I was sitting there with my then three-year-old son at a local coffee shop, and a, a fellow maybe a decade older than I am in his 50s leaned over, and he said, you know, good for you for spending this time with your son. I said, well, thanks. Why do you say this? He goes, you know, my kids are grown up, and they're gone, and I sacrificed a ton of money. He said, I'm a real estate agent, and it cost me, I don't even remember if he said tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. He said, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That time is sacred and special with my kids. Do it. And it really hit me. I thought, gosh, we sacrifice for what we love. We sacrifice Mm. for what is important to us. Well, what's more important than the next generation? Everybody listening to this show right now had some adult sacrifice to pour into their life so they could be successful and come to know the Lord. Every single one of us have. The question is, will we sacrifice our priorities? and really reach into this generation, because I think they are responsive and open to an adult who reaches out to them in that way. So we frame the book in terms of love. It's about loving this generation is the way to approach them. Yeah. One of your chapters is titled Love Equips, Giving Kids a Worldview That Brings Significance. I think you could ask any kid anywhere, and they would agree that that's really what they want at their core. They want to live a life of significance Um, but don't necessarily know how to get there. Give us some ideas of how we can help them to shape a worldview uh, that competes, quite frankly, with the prevailing worldview of the culture. Here's one simple idea I did recently with my son. He's 15, and when this movie Bohemian Rhapsody came out, which was about the rock band Queen, he asked me if he could go see it. I read up a little on it and thought, well, I've got a little bit of concerns about some of the message of sexuality. I think there's at least a mild agenda in this film. But I looked at it and thought, you know what? He's old enough to talk about this. So I said to him, I said, hey, here's the deal. I'll take you to the movie. You can bring a friend whose parents approve. If when we're done, we just come back home and you talk with me about it for 20 or 30 minutes. He agreed. We went to the movie, brought his friend. We came home and just sat at our dinner table and for probably half an hour just talked about what was the message of that movie? What was positive in the movie? How as Christians should we think about this film? What did the movie say about hope? And we just talked it through. I didn't lecture him, but in a relationship, exploring ideas helped him think Christianly. So Mm -hmm. our whole goal in this, Georgine, is not to say here's a whole new plan and all these things people have to do. Rather, we're just encouraging people to say, if you open up your eyes and look around with intentionality, there's more opportunities to influence this generation than you think if you just see it 
and prioritize. Yeah, that's such an excellent point. In fact, one of your chapters, our listeners will be interested in knowing, uh, title Love Engages, preparing students through movies, music, social media, and current mm-hmm. events. These are things they are they connect with on a regular basis. It's easy to complain about them, but it's another thing to seize these as opportunities to have conversation that can be influential in the life of a young person. That, that is exactly right. Opportunity is the key word. Every time I see an article that I'm reading in the news, I think, huh, maybe I could talk with my kids about this. When I hear about a TV show, I think, I wonder if this is one we could watch and discuss. I am always in the back of my mind thinking, what are opportunities to teach kids in the classroom, to talk with my son and his friends, or to talk with my own kids? The opportunities are there. Another of your chapters is titled um, Love Trains. And it, the subtitle is Resisting the Desire to Entertain Rather Than Train. I think sometimes we reduce our interactions with young people to entertainment because we feel like, well, at least they're more likely to like me if, uh, if our conversation devolves to that. Talk a bit about this notion of training um, a young person through the course of just natural life conversation and walking together. Well, we're trying to create a shift in the way some people look at the next generation from teaching to training. So teaching is when we just impart information to somebody. But training is when we prepare somebody for an upcoming challenge that they're going to engage in. So for us, we're not suggesting everybody go out and do this tomorrow, but we take students onto Berkeley's campus, we take students to Salt Lake City, and we get them in conversations with atheists and with Mormons and people of very different belief systems. So when we're teaching on that theology and apologetics, they have an actual event they're looking forward to. So this isn't just information. This is stuff they need to know because they're about to be in the arena, so to speak. So I think we need to look at parenting. We need to look at just any mentoring this generation saying, all right, how do we get kids into the game? How do we challenge them? So we're not just giving them information. Yeah but we are actually training them and it starts to change the way that they value the information and theology that we're talking about. Well, this is an excellent book to help uh, older adults uh, to think through the opportunities that we already have to be men and women of influence and to be motivated by love rather than a sense of frustration with younger, the younger generation. Again, the title of the book is So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. The book is uh, published by David C. Cook. Sean McDowell, thank you so much for the book and for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on, George. Appreciate it very much. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow is Friday, and on Fridays we lighten up. We're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news we don't typically cover uh, during the week. Well, Botham Jean was a young man who uh, had a promising future. He was a man of faith. He had uh, tremendous ability And everyone who knew him talked about just what a tremendous young man he was. He had plans for his future. Well, he was shot down when a police officer in the town he was living in mistook him for someone who had burgled her apartment. She lived in the same building, entered the room, believing it was her apartment, and she shot him dead. Well, the brother of Botham Jean, who was shot and killed by the former Dallas police officer, Amber Geyer, publicly forgave her and asked to hug her in court. Now, this has been something of a puzzle to many who have looked on. It was an emotional scene during the impact statement made in court when Brant Jean said he forgave Geyer, the former police officer, if she is truly sorry, saying, I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. 
I'm speaking for myself, he went on to say, but I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. And of course, she was responsible for the death of his brother. He went on to say, I personally want the best for you. He added, saying his brother's, his late brother, Botham, would also want the best for Geyer, which would include her giving her life to Christ. He then twice asked the judge, Tammy Kemp, if he could give Geyer a hug. With permission from the judge, Brandt, the brother of the slain young man, and Geyer, the police officer responsible for his death, embraced for a long time as she cried on his shoulder. Well, following the impact statement, Judge Kemp gave Geyer a Bible. You can see a video of that online, one she kept with her at the courthouse and used every day. Well, the judge opened the Bible to John 3.16 and told Geyer, the defendant, this is your job for the next month, right here, John 3.16. She also embraced Geyer after she first spoke with the and embraced Botham's family. In an interview with Teresa Woodward of WFAA, Botham's mother, Allison, said if Amber Geyer had spent just 60 seconds engaging Botham, the two of them would have been friends today. Just 60 seconds. He would have laughed it off with her. She chose to kill him. Allison John's full statement outside the courtroom can also be heard online. Well, earlier in the week, a jury found Geyer guilty of murder in, first, in the first degree for fatally shooting Botham Jean just last year when she entered his apartment. On Wednesday, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison with the possibility of parole after five. Well, Geyer, who was Botham's downstairs neighbor, testified that she entered his apartment by mistake following a 14-hour shift, thinking it was her place and that Botham was a burglar. Well, during the trial, the jury heard testimony from neighbors about how often they got lost and wound up on the wrong floor on Southside Flats, where Geyer and Jean lived. This is according to the Dallas Morning News. While many viewed Brandt's display of forgiveness in a positive light, others, including Bishop Talbert Swan of the Church of God in Christ in Springfield, Massachusetts, were more critical. Hashtag Botham Jean would have never received only 10 years if he broke into Amber Geyer's apartment and murdered her, he tweeted. Her family would neither have offered forgiveness nor hugged him. The bailiff wouldn't have combed uh, his hair and the judge wouldn't have hugged him and given him a Bible, end quote. Thus says the pastor. Kyle Howard, preacher and theologian with the AND campaign, took to Twitter to warn about drawing the wrong conclusion from the act of forgiveness. Yes, he forgave her and hugged her because that's the kind of Christianity that black church and black Christians have always practiced from forgiving their slave masters to a teenage racist who shot up their church. That doesn't nullify the pursuit of justice, he tweeted. If the only time you want to praise or affirm the black church is in moments when black Christians are forgiving those who have murdered their loved ones, you your affirmations are profoundly disingenuous. Well, following the words of Jesus, to be forgiven, you forgive. Now, that doesn't mean that justice should not be served, that one should not be held accountable for and responsible for their actions, even though Brandt, Jean did say that he didn't even want her to go to jail. That was a step for many that went too far. Others saw his forgiveness um, as a positive Christian testimony. This is an unbelievable testimony. This man is living out the gospel of Jesus Christ, which goes against everything in our human nature. This could only happen by the power of the Holy Spirit and because he absolutely believes he will see his brother again. Powerful. That's what Tony Dungy wrote, the Hall of Fame NFL coach on Twitter. Geyer is the first Dallas police officer to be convicted of murder since the 1970s. Of the incident, 
In the Patriot Post culture beat, they write, I forgive you. Those may be the most powerful words in the English language, and Brant Jean uttered them in the most amazing circumstance. Jean said he forgave Amber Geyer of murdering his brother Botham. I wasn't ever going to say this in front of my family or anyone, the 18-year-old Jean said, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want uh, want you to do. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person, and I don't wish anything bad on you. He paused before asking the judge, I don't know if that is possible, but can I give her a hug, please, please? When the judge answered, Jean and Geyer embraced for nearly a minute, a full minute, exchanging heartfelt words. It was a powerful emotional moment in a divided nation. Geyer, who is white, was a Dallas police officer. Jean's brothers um, are black. Geyer shot and killed Botham on the September of 2018 after entering what she said she thought was her apartment and discovering a man she assumed was an intruder. For Brant Jean to forgive and embrace Geyer in that atmosphere shows the true power of Jesus Christ to bring restoration, forgiveness when it's impossible for humans. Judge Tammy Kemp, also black, wept openly when the two embraced and was moved herself to hug Geyer and tell her, ma'am, it's not because I'm good, it's because I believe in Christ. None of us are worthy. Forgive yourself, she gave a Bible to Geyer. To the Jean family, Kemp said, thank you for the way you modeled Christ. Uh, That, again, is the judge. It is a remarkable story, uh, often misunderstood. She will spend time in prison. My guess is she'll be out in five years, even though she was given 10. um, And she will certainly have much to think about during those uh, during those years. Well, as I mentioned on Friday, we're going to lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. So we're looking forward to that. A quick glimpse of some of the uh, Programs that are coming up next week, we're going to talk with Leighton Ford. He has a new memoir, A Life of Listening, Discerning God's Voice and Discovering Our Own. We're also going to talk next week with Elizabeth Bra, God's Spies. Really quite fascinating. The Stasi's Cold War espionage campaign inside the church. We'll talk next week with Glenn Sunshine, author of The Kingdom Unleashed, How Jesus' First Century Kingdom Values Are Transforming Thousands of Cultures and Awakening His Church. And we're working on some other things as well. Well, as I mentioned at the top of the program today was bring your Bible to uh, to school day and lots of kids did just that. They were anticipating a half a million kids across the country bringing their Bibles uh, to school perhaps for the first time, perhaps as a part of regular practice, and they encouraged them to share their faith with their classmates. Um, just want to encourage you to encourage young people to do just that, to live out their faith in the environment that they spend much of their time in, and that is in their schools. I'm uh, so reminded of um, Botham John's brother and the position he took in the murder trial of his brother, and uh, would that we all could have that kind of grace. I think it's entirely right for an individual to spend time in prison for first-degree murder under these circumstances, but to enter that um, confinement without the weight of the family's hatred uh, perhaps means there that grace may prevail and change the heart of that woman over the next five to ten years. I want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. 
And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.